Welcome to Seth Farbman on podcast from startup to stock exchange. Recently, I had the opportunity to attend the NEBO conference, which is the National Investment Banking Association conference. I've been very fortunate over the last five or six years to serve on the board of that organization. And I wanted to share on the podcast today something different. Normally, I have an opportunity to interview somebody and get some insights and value for the listeners of the podcast on either a startup or a company that's going public or professionals that are related to the public company arena. Today, it's going to be highlights of the Q&A session that we had uh, the evening before the main event at the NEBA conference. So what does that mean for you? That means that you're going to get to hear some of the key questions that are surrounding the area of capital markets today for smaller companies. I think the title of the the panel was actually um, everything in the capital markets that you were afraid to ask. And these are some of the questions that the audience members posed. And these are some of the answers from the professionals. I'm going to do you all a favor. I'm going to skip the part where I told an introductory joke which bombed miserably, and I'm going to cut right to the chase. We wanted to start off with a question that would offer value for both the public company CEOs that were in the audience, as well as some of the private companies that were in the process or thinking of raising capital and going public. And so the first question was addressed primarily to Andrea Catanio, who's an attorney uh, in the area of securities and corporate law with Shepard Mullen. And the question was specifically, what are the various ways in which a company can go public? You know, historically, you think about the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange and the confetti and the companies that are uh, going the traditional IPO route. But as many of you know, there are alternative choices. There is what's referred to as the organic route, which, which Andrea will touch on. There's the reverse merger. And most recently, a very popular route to pursue is the direct listing. So let's hear what Andrea has to say in terms of explaining some of the various ways in which a company should consider going public. Andrea Catania. That's compliance. So there are several ways that a company can go public, and it's not just the IPO. Um, I've written about the organic going public transaction many times over the years because that's something I'm a proponent of. But before I kind of go into the process briefly, because I don't want to give you too long an answer, I just want you to realize that it's something that can be achieved by yourselves as companies, as small business issuers, without an expensive IPO and without a reverse merger which is another mechanism to go public, merging your private entity into um, a public company, whether it's a shell, meaning it has no business operations, or it has business operations, and reports to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, Some investors prefer a company that's public because a company that's public is forced to be transparent. A public company has to have audited financial statements, and that gives investors a level of comfort to a degree. 
It also gives them an understanding that officers and directors have to meet certain criteria and can't have had issues because they would be rejected for trading purposes. So many, many advantages. I won't cover um, that long list, but the going public paths could be IPO, which could be costly, and it is reserved, I think, for companies that are either pre-revenue biotechs that have a huge potential upside or extraordinarily profitable revenue-generating companies that have proved their model and have an underwriter that will back them to do the IPO. The other two methods that I'm happy to discuss with you, any of you in more detail, the reverse merger process, which is can be complex, can be simple, um, but it's, it basically entails, like I said, merging the private entity with an entity that's already public and then combining financial statements, uh, getting them audited, and uh, becoming a reporting company to the Securities and Exchange Commission, or my favorite, the organic method. And I'll just spend two minutes on that, and then I'll see if anyone else has anything to add. But um, I think what a lot of companies don't realize, even if they have a relatively simple cap table where they only have two shareholders, let's say themselves and maybe uh, a family member or a synergistic company that is helping them and they want to raise money. As a securities lawyer, I'm going to take a look at things like the company's uh, certificate of incorporation or articles of incorporation, depending on what state they're incorporated in, and make sure they have enough shares to grow their company, enough uh, common stock shares. But bringing in investors and raising capital in a manner that makes you eligible to go public needs a little forethought. And you need to have at least 50 shareholders to, to trade a stock. So, you know, keeping that in mind, if you're dealing with some experts, and believe me, you'll meet today, tomorrow, and you've probably already met and have on staff or as part of your uh, bevy of consultants, people who can advise you in this regard. But having um, a plan in mind to build a shareholder base, which may take one or two stages to build that shareholder base of offerings that follow the securities rules um, and the exemptions from, from registration, et cetera, and um, filing then a registration statement with the Securities and Exchange Commission. I don't want to get too technical, but the steps are raise money, build a shareholder base, file a registration statement with the Securities and Exchange Commission with audited financial statements, and then a find a market maker and get trading. And these are things that people who have been doing this for a long time can walk you through. And in six months' time, a private company can build this whole process and have a public company without merging into someone else's company that might have liabilities or litigation or skeletons. Um, and an IPO, you've heard rumors of how expensive that might be. If it's not for you, but you want to go public, there's a path to take, and, and I'm, I'm happy to go into more detail with any of you who have interest. A lot of the audience members were talking about the different ways in which a company can go public, but I think that they skipped over um, perhaps the first question that they should be thinking of, and that is, should a company go public? You know, what are the benefits of listing and what size company should say, okay, well, this is something we want to pursue. This is something we should consider. When is a company an idea on the back of a napkin versus when is a company a company? 
and should be looking into this. And then secondly, and Carlo Corzine from Dawson James, an investment banker out of Florida, was able to uh, enlighten us with some of these answers. Um, when a company is going public, what are some of the, the deals that are getting done over the last six to nine months? Are there specific industries, specific types of deals that are getting done? Let's hear what Carlo has to say. No, that's the first thing I always ask. You know, why do you want to be public? You know, it's it's amazing the answers you get. You know, I want to get rich, which is always the wrong answer, of course. Um, you know, there's a lot of times they uh, practices or companies they don't have children. They want to hand their business down. They want to, their employees to participate. They want their community to participate. You know, and usually the answer really comes down to it's cheaper capital if, if you're going to be a public company. But we we see a a lot of the Chinese companies going public, and you always scratch your head because, uh, for the most part, uh, nobody's made a whole lot of money on Chinese companies going going public. And believe me, the Chinese guys, uh, the investors over there, put a lot of money in these companies. But the main reason why they do it is transparency. You know, as she said, that the fact is they are bidding for contracts with the government. They're dealing with various other uh, entities in China or in the United States or around the world. And the best way to present yourself is in a transparent way so they'll know, what the, know who the management is, what, what, the, what their history is, what the financials are. And by doing that, uh, becoming a public company opens their business up uh, to a lot of avenues that they wouldn't have if they were a private company. Um, to get to Seth, your question is, uh, you know, it's not like it used to be. You can't write an idea on a napkin. Even in the public sector, I say, you can't write a, an idea on a napkin and go go raise money, go to a bunch of bankers. You know, we hear every day, you know, hey, we got a company who wants to go public. We listen to it, and it's like, hey, you should try that yourself. You don't have any customers yet. You know, it's an idea still. The only ones that's really going to get done is those that have not only a, a plan, but have started to execute their plan. They have some revenues, have a management staff, have a business plan, have a distribution plan for their product. You know, it's gone down the ways. When, these days, there's either public, either private or you're a NASDAQ for the most part. The OTC is a whole other topic to talk about, but that's a, that's a tough market to be on right now. So, you know, if you're, you're caught in the quagmire, you really want to spend your time building your business. And once you build your business, those are the companies we want to fund. Those are the companies that are fundable uh, these days. So a few years ago, I saw an amazing movie called La La Land. And um, sometimes when you see some of these companies ringing the bell and they're at NASDAQ and the confetti is flowing, it seems that way. But trust me, from where I sit as a transfer agent and you know, where the CEO sits and um, some of the shareholders sit, it's not always La La Land. And litigation is, is definitely an important component of that. Um, we've got two Jonathans up here, so I'm going to refer to you as Jonathan Esquire, if that's okay. Or John. Oh, or John. Um, what are some of the, uh, I guess, the bullets that companies that are raising capital, both at the early stage as well as, as a publicly traded company, really should be aware of to try to avoid the potential pitfalls of litigation, or, or once they're in it, things to be leery of to, uh, to try to get out of it as quickly as possible? I know that's a, a broad question, but no, some takeaways. It's, it's really, I think, I mean, litigation, it's not like rocket science, like Jim had said. And a lot of this, I think it's pretty easy. I think, well, actually, let me, if I may, just by a show of hands, who here knows who Don Larson is? 
I'm sure some of you remember Don Larson, Game 2 of the World Series, right? Somebody tell me what happened in Game 2. You're all wrong. Game 2, he lasted one and two-thirds innings. He got removed. The Yankees lost 13-8. to eight, And no one remembers that. Why? <laughs> the reason no one remembers that is because, yeah, he did a little bit better uh, in game five, as you may have heard. That was the perfect game. My point is, no one remembers him for his loss. Everybody remembers him for his win. And that is what you should be striving for with your litigation reputation. When the SEC is going to look at your deal, they're going to wonder, all right, am I approving this or not? Is it a bad company or is it a good company? And it really shouldn't be that, that basic. But if they know that you're, you're safe, you're good, you're perfect, then honestly, those skeletons don't even get looked at. You get your approval. It, it goes a lot quicker. You don't need them to massage the things that they're otherwise going to need to massage for you. On the other hand, if you get known for that big, big loss, even if you do later on do pretty well, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting approved. Maybe your deal gets done, but you know what? First they ask a question, then another question. Why? Because of those skeletons. Now, how can you make the bad things go away? It's, it's actually pretty simple. You're going to get good advice, and if you have good, you have to spend the money on the DNO coverage in the first place. Insurance can make these problems go away. You have someone identify it before it becomes a litigation. And if you just have some advisor say, you know what, this looks pretty bad. Why don't we get this settled before they file? You talk to your insurance company, that can make it go away. You don't even have to have that litigation. Or if you do, then honestly, you work a lot harder, and you can usually get those settled if they need to, and you can win the ones that you should win. And if you do that, everyone's going to remember you for your game five and not for your game two. You know, over the last 18 years in my role as a securities attorney, as an Edgar filing company, as a stock transfer agent, I've been exposed to various different parts of the going public process. And time and time again, unfortunately, what I see happen is that a company, besides the money and the time and the effort that they spend into the going public process, they get to that end of the journey where perhaps they did an S1, they did a 15C211, they received FINRA approval, DTC approval, DWAC approval, or they listed on the NASDAQ and all the approvals are done. They've got their symbol and they're ready to go. And they say, now what? And I say, well, what do you mean now what? Go tell your story to the world. And they say, well, how do we do that? Do we just put out a press release? And I think that it's a, an unfortunate misconception that a lot of times companies think, well, I'll just put out a press release I'll hope somebody reads it, and all of a sudden that's going to turn on the faucet of liquidity and exposure to allow their stock to trade. And that is not the case. In fact, nothing can be farther from the truth, especially in today's environment when putting out a press release by itself or posting a press release on your website unto itself will not will not produce the results that most companies are looking for. Instead, um, most will agree that there's a combination required of various different factors, whether it's um, road shows, whether it's uh, corporate access events, whether it's 
taking out uh, brokers uh, and investment bankers and analysts to luncheons and to dinners. But on top of all that is, without question, some sort of social media component. And so the next panelist, Jonathan from Network Newswire, is going to shed some light on specifically social media for public companies. Yeah, it is. And obviously, it's very competitive out there. I mean, just online content or any kind of content, you know, we're not too far from Times Square, for instance. People are constantly being bombarded with different messages. And it's about reaching your right audience with the right message. And I I know that probably sounds a little cliche, but that can be very hard to do, you know, with the way things are right now. And um, the other thing I, I think a lot of companies struggle with is reaching beyond, you know, the people that already know about them. And uh, I'm pretty excited about providing a presentation tomorrow with a whole bunch of ideas and how you can reach, you know, new investors and more of a discovery process. Uh, So it's more their idea, they found you, and then they get excited on their own. You know, I posted on LinkedIn the other day the following story. I was actually at this conference, the NEBA conference, and I was talking to a client that was uh, introduced to me by Lisa Lowe, who works at VStock. And uh, this gentleman, who's a great guy, wears many hats. He was telling me how he's, uh, he has a public company, he has a broker-dealer, an investment banking firm, and he was telling me a couple of the things that he does. And then I was telling him a couple of things that I do, um, ranging from being a stock transfer agent to running a background check company. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's pretty boring. And you know what? He's right. I think his exact his exact words were, you're the master of boring. Um, but at the same time, what we do as a transfer agent or doing background checks on people is a very, very vital and essential component of the corporate arena. And so uh, this next question I was grateful to get. It was a layup from somebody in the audience who I thank him because it was a great question. What is the role of a transfer agent? Stock transfer agent. Stock transfer agent, our role is really to be your window to the shareholders. Um, We keep the books and the the records um, to issue the securities. Uh, People often say, well, when do I need a stock transfer agent? Uh, Really, it's it's, um, when you're about to go public or if you're a private company and you want to present yourself as if uh, you are um, ready to take on investors, shareholders, um, institutional investors, and really, you know, just take the uh, Excel QuickBook off of your uh, off of your hands. Um, the other thing is that what often people uh, confuse, and this is an important component for those of you that are in the public world, people often confuse the roles of a broker dealer, a broker dealer, a transfer agent, and a clearing firm. You know, people will call me up as a transfer agent, start yelling and screaming, saying. Well, why won't you deposit my stock? I want to sell. I'm like, I'm not a broker-dealer. I can't sell. All I do is issue the shares or transfer the shares, hence the transfer agent part. Um, you have to know which, which firms are doing which transactions. Um, and I think that the takeaway from this evening and from tomorrow is really, is really just to try to get to know the different players in the industry, um, again, private or public, One of the things that I always say is phenomenal about NEBA as compared to most every other conference that that I go to or that we sponsor, there are some conferences that the audience is there on a very particular mission. And if you don't fit into that pigeonhole, then nobody really wants to talk to you. 
I find that the, the audience here and the attendees and the board and the presenters, everybody's here to really network and to learn and to meet new people. Um, and that's really, really a value add that um, if you can surround yourself with the right people, whether it's the service providers, the attorneys, the auditors, um, the bankers, that's really that's, that's something that's going to help you, you know, accomplish what, you, what you're setting out to do. Because many of the companies that were attending NEBA were um, on the smaller side, and that's okay, there's a very active small cap market out there, um, but the shareholders in the audience and the investors in the audience all wanted some additional clarity on why it is so difficult to deposit stocks, um, whether it's on the clearing firm side, the brokerage firm side, and so hopefully this will provide some insight into this ongoing struggle that exists today. Both of us sit on a roundtable discussion group at OTC Markets trying to address this situation. And really the question has to do with depositing low-priced securities. It's not as easy today because a lot of clearing firms are not comfortable with companies that are not on a national exchange. Penny stocks, and that's defined as any stock that's $5 or below, um, so, so many stocks fit into that category, or that are not trading on a national exchange, some clearing firms absolutely will not deposit. And I'm like a microcap person for, you know, almost 25 years. Most of my clients fall under the category of a $75 million market cap or below. They're up and coming. They are ready to list on a national exchange. Emerging. They're emerging. They have so much to look forward to. That's, you know, I, I keep saying it's gratifying, but that's the kind of, if you've got a company that has uh, an opportunity to really pivot, where it's at a... Um, What's the term I'm looking for where, yes, yes. When, when you're at that point where um, a company really can have, have significant change, it's often in that level. And we need to be banding together as um, service providers to figure out a way. One of the things that we've been talking about exorbitantly, but it just hasn't resolved anything quite yet, is providing a level of due diligence to the clearing firms and to the regulators so that they massage the rules a little bit. Like if the lawyers could indicate with a legal opinion the tracking of uh, a certificate from start to the fifth owner and have all of the documentation required to write various legal opinions in one accessible folder that anyone at a clearing firm could pick up and have all of those records, it, it, it might make a difference. But it requires the collaboration of many and I'm, I was kind of pleased to see so many law firms attending this roundtable and talking about um, collaborating and coming up with a way to fix the problem. So there's no real easy answer. It is going to be a challenge. It should encourage most of you to one day list on a national exchange, but that doesn't solve the problem for so many of you now that want to go public or that are public on the OTC markets. And we care about it, and we're trying to address it. I just have one quick thought on that to pick up on what, what Andrea just said there. I cannot tell you how many litigations get started because of this very reason. And what I always see, it's not a legal opinion from Andrea or from someone like her. 
the difference between a real, and yes, more expensive, but a real opinion letter that shows that real lawyers put in real time and did real work, and, and that's what she's talking about. That is never the kind of legal opinion letter you see at the bottom of the problems, the litigations. And that, it's the reputation, it's the game too. That's why the clearing firms don't want any penny stocks. It's because they don't see, or the reputational value there is not the Andrea style of a legal opinion letter. What they see is, I'm not going to name them, I'm sure a bunch of you do know who I'm talking about, but there are factories out there where you pay what amounts to 25 cents and you can get a legal opinion letter. They don't need to know much more than your name and your company's name and maybe the address. Uh, you know, And you're going to get your legal opinion letter. It will be meaningless and it'll cause a litigation and that, really, you didn't spend the money on a better legal opinion letter. It leads to a litigation. It leads to bad reputation and that is why the clearing firms don't 